The scripture reading for today comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and can be found on page 6 in your bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Across the four Sundays of Advent, starting today, we have a special treat where we will be rotating different preachers from the Grace DC network to fill this pulpit starting today. And we will be bringing to you a single series that is called Waiting for the World to Change. Now, that's John Mayer, but we also believe that's Jesus, uh, and we are grateful for the chance to bring Four meditations taken from this vision from Revelation 21. And each week we're going to ponder not only the coming of Christ, his birth, and the gift that that was and is, but also the promise that he will come to make all things new and all things right. After all, we live every day bringing before our Christ the aches and longings of our hearts. Dear friends, what are you waiting for this Advent? And so today we have the special treat of hearing from the lead pastor of Grace Mosaic, one of the sister churches in our family of churches in Grace, D.C., and that is the Reverend uh, Russ Whitfield, who is a familiar face and voice here in this community. Russ, thanks so much for being here and blessing us. Let's all welcome Pastor Russ together. morning, Grace Meridian Hill. It's good to be here in spite of the Ubers. I won't say more about that because my message will convict me, but it is good to be here. So great to see uh, little Kennedy get baptized. That was sweet. The onion cutting ninjas was over here. Getting a little wet here, you know. Uh, It's sweet in this season. Um, to be looking toward God's promises in all their forms, um, but particularly in this Advent season, um, because Advent is about moving from the darkness toward the light of Christmas. And so um, with that in mind, I want to encourage you to um, join me in prayer, and then we will get into our text for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your story. For the hope of your promises and your strong words to your people, that we don't have to fear, that we don't have to be captive to the uncertainties of this world, 
that we are heirs of a promise that will result in a new heaven and a new earth. And so we pray that this morning we would be captivated by that message and that news and that hope. And we pray that you would help us to deal honestly with our hearts as they are now, expecting that our hearts will not remain what they were when we came in, but that through your word, your spirit can actually change us right now in this moment. And so we pray that you would lift our expectations and we pray that you would meet us in as unlikely a place as this church building, just as you showed up in the unlikely place of a manger. So Lord, bless your people in the strength of your love through the power of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1963, when uh, Dr. King led the march on Washington, just a few miles south of here, um, he engaged the people and said that they gathered together in order to cash a check. He said that the framers of American government through the Constitution and through the Declaration of Independence had written a promissory note guaranteeing that all Americans were to be heirs to the right of pursuing life, liberty, and happiness. But on that day, Dr. King acknowledged that for black Americans, that that check had bounced, that it had returned to them marked insufficient funds. And that, you know, like any of us would do if we were to receive a check that bounced, or was marked insufficient funds, those people on that day very well could have taken that check, that promissory note, and had torn it up and thrown it away. But essentially, in this speech, Dr. King speaks to the people and he says, though you live in this tension, don't tear up the check. And then he begins to paint a picture for them of the future that will come together when they get to cash that check Together. Dr. King says, I'm confident that the bank of justice is not bankrupt. So don't tear up the check. On Sunday mornings, when we gather together as God's people, we gather together to cash a check. When the Lord gave us his word, his story of rescue, his covenant promises, the Lord gave us a promissory note to which every Christian is the fall heir, that we would have joy, among other things. But at times, our life circumstances and the circumstances of the world lead us to believe at times that the check that we're holding is going to bounce, that it will be marked insufficient funds. We experience heartbreaks, disappointments, and losses, and it seems that we're holding a bad check. Home life gets chaotic, our marriages falter, and our loved one's health declines, and it seems like we're holding a bad check. Our nation grows more polarized. News headlines surge with yet more victims of abuse and injustice, and it seems like we're holding a bad check. But in our text for this morning, the Apostle John is reminding us that the bank of joy is not bankrupt because Christ has come 
Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. And so what he's saying to the people, to his friends, and to you and I this morning is, don't tear up the check. Don't tear up the check. And then he goes on to paint a glorious picture for us of the life that is to come when we are able to cash that check together. This new reality that we look through Advent toward when God will make all things new indeed. And so this Advent, as Pastor Duke said, we are going to be working through a series borrowed from St. John Mayer (laughs) called Waiting on the World to Change because that's exactly what God's people are doing. We're waiting on the world to change and it is a waiting uncertainty, even if at times we struggle to believe that it's really going to happen. We're answering the question, how is it that Advent speaks to our deepest longings as people? How, how does the first Advent and the second Advent of Jesus and, and the every Sunday Advent of Jesus through the word and the sacraments, how does that speak into our longings and our desires? And this morning, we're going to begin with joy. And if we can see what John saw today, we're going to realize two points. That joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. Joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. So let's look at our first point. Joy is our future existence. The Apostle John, when he wrote this letter, when he received this, this vision, he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos for his holding to the the testimony of Christ. And as he's exiled on this island, he's given a vision from God of the glorious transformation that's to come when God judges all evil, when he gets rid of all sadness and he brings his kingdom into full flourishing. And he's he's looking into the results of the return of the king and he's He's out to refurbish the imaginations of God's people. He wants to refurbish their imaginations so that they can persevere through the trials and the pains of life. A quick side note that you can actionize today, that you can make operational today, is that every single morning when you wake up, you have a choice about where you're going to invest your imaginative powers. Are you going to imagine the worst case scenario where God's not at work? God doesn't care. This is probably going to turn out worst case scenario. The spirit's not going to be present. I'm going to have to take care of myself. These crazy kids are going to drive me over the edge today. This is what's going to happen today. Or you can invest your imaginative resources in a more hopeful direction. God's going to meet me today. God's going to be enough today. Before I encounter that trial, I will encounter sufficient grace today. God will be with me today. He'll treat me like a child today. He will be my father today. And I will belong to him today and to this community. And he's going to show up and he's going to do work in my life. Where will you invest your imaginative energies? John's trying to refurbish their imaginations as they inhabit a hostile world. While all hell is breaking loose in the world, John wants all of heaven to break loose in the church so that they will bear witness to the fact that Christ is coming again. 
He's coming as judge and he's coming as renovator. Their eyes are full of tears, but John would have their hearts full of hope. Even as they stare down the difficulties and the trials of this world. And our text gives us uh, the final scenes of, of John's vision. And in these final scenes, we are, we are peering through John's imagination. As John describes it, we are peering into the final day. We are peering into the future of God's people and God's world. And we have to appreciate that in this text, John is trying to express the inexpressible. He's trying to describe the indescribable. And so he's grabbing on this very elevated language, this very heightened kind of poetic language that was known at the time as apocalyptic. Somebody say apocalyptic. 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 You thought your next cocktail party, you thought, yeah, I was talking about apocalyptic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> apocalyptic. It's a Greek word that means the revealing. And in order to capture for us what it is that God has revealed to the Apostle John, he has to use this heightened language that would have been accessible to the people at the time to help them to wrap their minds around where they were headed. And if you could place a tag on this scene, you could very easily place the tag joy over this scene. What do we see in this scene? We see joy. We see joy. And this is the shape of that joy. Verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John sees a groaning world giving way to a glorious world. He sees a painful world giving way to a perfect world. He sees an evil world giving way to a joyful world. That's what he sees in this future. And John mentions in this first verse that the sea was no more. And for some of y'all, y'all are like, that's it. I quit. I don't want to go here. I love the beach. I can sympathize with that sentiment, but that's not exactly what John is talking about here. Remember, John is exiled on the island of Patmos. And what separates him from the people he loves? The sea. But John sees a day where there will be no separation between black, brown, white, Asian. That there will be no separation between rich and poor and, and formally educated and not formally educated. And those who went to Ivy League school and those who went to a state school and those who speak Spanish and those who speak Chinese. There will be no more sea and separation between people but the sea meant even more than this because if you read through the book of revelation the sea throughout this book is the source of evil and chaos the beast comes out of the sea it is the source of uncertainty it's it's representative of the forces that tear at the goodness and integrity of god's created world in their worldview, the sea represented everything that they feared and could not control. And John sees that this will be no more. This will be a world of joy because all of the things that interrupt and frustrate our joy will be no more. But what else does John see? 
What does he see? Look at verse two. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now you have to appreciate that as John is writing this, Jerusalem is in ruins. It is ashes. The Romans had destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But John could somehow process the ruin of this world's Jerusalem because he could see the new Jerusalem coming. He could look at the current broken, ruined city with hope that the new city was coming down out of heaven from God. And he captures this image in the context of of wedding joy. The context is is the reception where there's eating and drinking and dancing and happiness and celebration. And everyone is celebrating what has resulted from two parties coming together in love. And he says, this is the the context. The, the, The city's coming down like a bride adorned for a groom. Can you access those happy moments? Those heightened periods of joy? those climaxes of our earthly life. Those things, you can get a sense from John. John is reaching like the things that make us most happy, the things that touch us deeply within, the the, the greatest vacations that we have ever taken, the most beautiful scenery we've ever laid eyes on in this creation, the the most satisfying conversations and celebrations, the, the, the height of sexual intimacy. All these things are like, or like C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, it's like, it's like the sound of a song we've not yet heard. It's like the scent of a flower that we've not yet seen. But John is seeing it. And he's trying to communicate this to us. He sees a city. And it's a holy city. It is a different city than anything we have known. Absolutely and uniquely beautified. John sees... A new Jerusalem, a city where there are no broken political promises, a city in which no lie will be uttered and no protest will be necessary and no evil words will ever be spoken. He sees a city where no shady business deals will take place, where nobody will be homeless or friendless or helpless, where none will rob and steal and murder, where nobody will be exploited and stepped on. There will be no orphans, no corruption of life, no inequality, no taxes, no broken down metro, and nobody will have to go to the DMV, amen? (laughs) Amen. I ain't seen celebration from Presbyterians like this this morning at Grace Mosaic. I got an eruption of applause. I said, all I have to do is mention no DMV and I'm going to get some amens. That's how you get Presbyterians alive. I see. But seriously, everything that grates us about this city, everything that, that causes despair about this city, it will be no more in the new city. But the most important reality that John sees is not an absence, but a presence. You see that in this text, don't you? You know, when you're trying to to describe the indescribable, you're trying to express the inexpressible. There's this way of doing theology. It's called apophatic theology. It's called the via negativa. You, You say, well, it's not this and it's not this and it's not this and it's not this. That's one way of trying to to capture what you're describing. To say what it's not. But now John begins to to say what what it is. Verse 3. 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you see this? The greatest cause for joy will not be amenities. It will be the Trinity. It's God himself. He is our prize. He is our reward. Because here's the deal. Everything that blunts our joy now, everything that saps our joy now could be reduced to an interruption in our communion with God. It's like when you're trying to have a conversation and someone's tugging on your pants. Mom, I need something. Right? Like some of y'all may know something about that. (laughs) But it's like the interruption that, that keeps you from having, from really engaging, from really getting in. From really connecting, those will be no more. Sin will be no more. And the fullness of joy will come in communion with God, uninterrupted, undisturbed, undiminished, heightened beyond what we can really process here right now. This is the future existence toward which we're headed. Joy is our future existence. But still, you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, but... It still feels like you're describing something out there, but I'm holding this check and I'm wondering if I should just tear it up, if it's even worth it. Because we live in a, in a culture and in an age of direct deposit. Like the immediacy thing is so important to us these days. And we tend to think that if it's the immediate isn't happening, then it's not happening at all. But if you remember, if if you're old enough to remember dealing in checks, (laughs) I'm not going to ask anybody in here if you remember that day. I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. If you're old enough to remember dealing in checks, uh, you, you know, and this may be part of the way you process it, that there will be times where you would get a check from somebody on Monday and they say, hey, hey don't cash that till Friday. You know, I got, I got to give them a check in my savings lineup. You know, uh, you, might, you might not have a very reliable piece of paper in your hand. But here's the deal. When you were making big purchases, when you were making important purchases, when there were big things on the line, you didn't just write a check. You got a cashier's check because a cashier's check was guaranteed by the bank that that piece of paper in your hand was most certainly going to result in a return of cash to you. And what we have from God is a cashier's check, as it, as it were, that we will most certainly lay hold of the joy that God has promised to us. And that, that, future, it, that, that future existence backs up into the present right now in a particular way. And I want to frame up joy for you in the present as resistance. Joy is our present resistance. That brings us to our final point. Joy is resistance. You may be familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian in Germany when the Nazi regime was sweeping uh, across Eastern Europe and working out the most heinous kind of evil against the Jewish people and others. And At this time, the Nazi regime was operating under the banner of Christianity. But there were a group of Christians, and they were called the Confessing Church. And they were trying to lean against 
the evil of the Nazi regime based upon their Christian faith. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those, one of those uh, uh, Christians in the confessing church. And he was teaching in an underground seminary called Finkenwald. And he was training up seminary students to lean against that present evil. But pretty soon the Nazi regime started watching Bonhoeffer. And pretty soon they, they banned him from teaching. And they banned him from having his seminary. So what, what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer then did was he started to engage his students and his friends through these circular letters that he would send around. It was subversive. And he was trying to engage them on what it meant to be Christians in the midst of the Nazi regime. And one of the most important themes that Bonhoeffer spoke to was joy. And Bonhoeffer, in one of these letters, he described that there's a difference. There are two kinds of joy that Christians appeal to. He says one is a false joy that's really no joy at all. And it's very sentimental and hallmarky. And then there's the real joy. And this is what he says. He says, in comparing the two, he says, A sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. It's a little sprinkling of happiness on your sadness. It's taking you out for a night with the girls, but not really dealing with the felt loss you're experiencing. It's, it's a numbness. It doesn't really deal with the real stuff. Then he says, the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but it finds life precisely within it. Do you see what he's saying? Advent hope doesn't lead you to avoid the ugly, painful realities of this world. You don't have to avoid these ugly, painful realities in order to have what we call Christian joy. In fact, Advent and real Christian joy lead you to stare these ugly realities in the face to see Christ present there and to even see through them to Christ more clearly. Just as we look through the painful, most heinous, ugly reality called the cross, we look through that to a resurrection. So now God's people process the world in the mode of death and resurrection. That's our new mode of seeing the world, engaging the world, lamenting with the world, and ultimately hoping along with the world to God's good future. This is what Christian joy fits you to do. It's resistance. Christian joy says, no, this is not the end of the story. No, this is not the final word. Christian joy says there is more beyond this, that God's undoing this, that God is redeeming this, that God is correcting this, that God is going to make it all new. There's an expiration date on this. This is going to go away. It's going to disappear and dissipate. Forever. The first advent, check it out. If you look at the, the two advents of Christ and then you listen to the advent of Christ through the word and sacraments every Sunday, what you see is that the first advent leads God's people, just like Jesus, 
to enter into the suffering and the brokenness of the world, bearing joy, bearing the good news of a new world to come. And the second advent is a guarantee we're going to make it out. You can enter into it with your friends and your, and your neighbors and your co-workers. You can lament with them. You can enter into their despair with them. You don't have to try and put on a happy face with them. No, we have something more resonant. You can enter in with them just like Christ entered in with us. And Lord willing, if they can lay hold of the vision that you see, if you can bear witness to the reality of the coming kingdom, then they just might make it out in the second advent with you to that eternal joy. But we have to have the courage to stare through it, to look despair and sadness and brokenness and ugliness in this world, to look it straight in the eye and say, your days are numbered. Christ is king. He's coming again. This world will be made new. You're like a bee flying around who has had the stinger sucked out of it. You look threatening, but you do not have the final word. That's why at the end of the worship service, there is a benediction. It is to form God's people to be reminded that God always gets the last word. And his last word is all things new. There are very few times in the book of Revelation where God himself speaks But he speaks in verse five and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And then just in case you weren't sure. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. But I'm not sure if it's going to happen, God. But these words are trustworthy and true. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it, God. But these words are trustworthy and true. I'm thinking of giving up, God. But these words are trustworthy and true. This is the hope of Advent. Frederick Beekner said this. This quote is fire. So just get ready. Y'all ready? Listen to this. Beekner says, once you have seen God in a stable, you can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in this wild pursuit of humanity. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, the birth of this peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and so earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe. That there is no place where we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart. Because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong. And just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. Come on, Beak, right? What he's saying is this. If God is caught in a manger, then God can be caught in the ghetto. If God could be caught working in the life of a peasant, then he can be caught working in the lives of the people you're trying to care for in this neighborhood. You can never, ever, ever figure him out. You can never guess where God's going to be at work. And the most, the most profound encouragement, the, the greatest warrant to expect that God is going to be at work in the hopeless and that he's going to be at work in the, in the devastation is Advent. 
Think about it. Think about it. In the most unlikely place, among the most unlikely people, at the most unlikely time, in the most unlikely circumstances, there is holy majesty showing up in humility. And do you wonder if God will show up here in Petworth and Columbia Heights and Adams Morgan? Do you wonder, will he show up? Will he be at work? Will he renew? Will he restore? Will he show up in this marriage? Will he show up in this relationship? Will he show up in my parenting when I want to choke these kids out? Will he? I'm sorry, I might be projecting here. I'm... This is the real stuff of life. And this is the real stuff that makes us sad. This is the real stuff that causes us despair. Will he act? Advent says, bet on it. And that's good news. This means that we don't become numb to the pain and suffering of this world. It just simply means that we can place it properly in its right context in the larger story with warrant for hope that God will be found in the very situations where we would consider him most absent. Where would you consider God to be most absent today? And how can Advent correct you? And by correcting you, increase your joy and help you to be a resistor against the despair, the current of despair in this world. Our joy is the strongest witness to Advent. It's the strongest witness to Advent. Joy is a defiant but God, counteracting every shade of darkness, every pain, every loss, and every ache of our souls. We shed real tears, but God is taking us to the tearless day. There is death now, but God has sent Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. There is mourning now, but God will turn our mourning into dancing. There is weeping now, but though weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning and Advent says that the daylight will break. The evil things, check it out. Look at what the text does. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. The evil things, the painful things. The mournful things, the dark things will one day become the former things. Do you see that? Look at that little insignificant little title that John throws on to the trials and troubles of this world. Do you know why he does that? It's echoing some of that Romans 8. I, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's beholding the final scene and all of the ugliness and brokenness and despair back here. He's just like the former things. Look at this. They're the former things. Let me close with this. The testimony of the Christian and the testimony of the church, I think is wonderfully captured in the most famous poem of Maya Angelou, who spoke Defiant hope for afflicted people. This is the testimony of the joyful Christian. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? 
bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Out of the huts of history, shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. And God's people in the hope of the resurrection, in the certainty of his appearing, in his joy, we rise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the hope of the gospel. We are grateful for the hope of Advent. And we pray that just as you entered in some 2,000 years ago, into the most unlikely place, that you would enter into our, our hearts, the most unlikely place, that we would prepare him room, and that we would nourish ourselves on the hope of Christ's return, that we would look back in certainty, that we would stand right now in stability, and we would look forward in certainty to your appearing. We pray that you would energize and mobilize us with these Hopeful realities. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Christ the Lord has
turn now to the Lord's table and as we reflected upon God sending his son into the world uh, to save us from ourselves, from our sins, from the brokenness, to bring us complete joy, utter joy that we need, uh, the type of joy that's rooted in Christ and what he's done on the cross. So we do this. We come to the table that he's prepared for us, proclaiming his death until he comes again. Proclaiming that Christ is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And so as we look through the table today, as looking unto his death, looking through to the resurrection, looking through to see him seated now on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and also looking to him to return again. So let me pray as we think about these things. Jesus, you have spread a table wide for us to come and partake of you. That though we at times maybe feel alone, but we are not alone. For you have given your spirit. And so we pray, strengthen our faith today. Take these ordinary things and make them extraordinary unto you. May you receive the glory for us partaking of this table, even of being here today, reflecting 
on your promise that you will come and come again. In your name we pray. Amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, the Lord Jesus broke it. That take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is a cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink of it, all of it. We have one table here up at the front and two at the back. I encourage you and invite you to get up at your own time to go to either station uh, that's nearest to you. If you need prayer during this time, we have members of our prayer team to my left, right towards the back here. They just stood up, Asia, <laughs> Aaron. Um, if you need prayer, go to them. You know, sometimes they may have words that you don't even have during this time of the year uh, as you long for the Lord's coming, but as you wrestle with things that may be going on in your own heart. You know, this table is laid out for those who profess Christ, who know without a shadow of a doubt that they belong to Christ and he belongs to them. If that's not your conviction today, we just ask that you not partake of the elements at the table, but perhaps you can sit and ponder anew this message that you heard today. You can take a look at some of the, the notes there in, in, the, in the bulletin. Uh, some of the quotes there uh, or reflect upon the questions there for you. Uh, but for those of you who are desperate and, and, and needy and know Christ and what he's done on your behalf by bringing you to the Father, by strengthening your joy, and that's what he wants to do today through this table. We say, come, come and be joyful with the Lord and celebrate with him his promise that he will come and he will come again. And his word is trustworthy and true. Amen. Amen.